tomorrow morning, our family is going to get into our van, and uh, like a lot of you, we're going to go to um, a cemetery. We're going to go to Greenwood Cemetery down by Lakeville. It's this little plot of land out in the country where a lot of my relatives are buried, especially on my mom's side. And tomorrow, a number of those graves at Greenwood Cemetery, like a lot of graves all around the country, are going to have little American flags flying over them, honoring those who served our nation in our armed services. Exactly. And about 11 o'clock, all the people at the cemetery, we're all going to gather around a flagpole, a large flagpole, like we do each year. And we'll look out through the cornfields there, and we'll see some buses kicking up the dust on the country roads. If it's wet, not as much dust. If it's not, there'll be a lot of, a lot of dust. And the, the buses will pull in, and the honor guard will get out. And then the Lakeville High School marching band will get out, and we'll commemorate Memorial Day services together. And the Word of God tells us that there's a season. There's a time for every purpose under heaven, including a time for war and a time for peace. And tomorrow we're going to pause to remember those who gave their lives in times of war, that we might live in peace. And one of those little flags, one of those little flags that's going to be waving over the graves is going to be waving over the grave of my father. He uh, served in the Army, and he served in the Air Force, and he served in the Navy. And I don't know anyone else. I never met anybody else that served in all three of those branches before. And like all of us, my dad had his stuff. Everyone's got their stuff. My dad had his stuff. But he was a really good father. He was a really good father. And a couple years ago, um, you, know, you know how it is over time, things come out over time. And, and a couple years ago, my sister shared a story about my father that I, in a Christmas letter that I had never heard before. And so here it is, my sister um, recalling something that happened with my dad and my brother and I. She said, Dear Faraway, she lived in New York at the time. She said, Dear Faraway friends and family, lately I keep thinking about the day that I came downstairs and I found my dad in the kitchen with his arms folded across his chest and an amused expression on his face as he watched something in the field. I came to stand next to him and I saw that my horse had escaped the pasture once again and was easily eluding my brothers, that's Ben and I, easily eluding my brothers' attempts to capture him. Knowing that this horse was no favorite or responsibility of my brother's, true that, I quickly grabbed my shoes and started to head out the door. Well, my dad put a hand on on my arm, and he stopped me. No, let them be, he said. I could have called you, but I sent them out on purpose to do something that I knew would be tough. They needed to learn how to work together. It builds character. Let's see what happens. Now, I have absolutely no memory of how the horse got back into the pasture, but I do remember watching my dad as he watched the boys. Uh, He watched the boys and wondering just how many times he stood there watching me struggle after sending me out on some character-building task. Apparently, not everything was as it had seemed. My father had been watching, sometimes amused, but with a purpose, and ready to either step in when needed or to give a quick affirmation at the end. That's what good fathers do. I was blessed again to have a really good dad. He was a dad that knew sometimes to not give me what I thought I wanted, but to give me what I really needed. This morning we're starting a brand new series, and it's called Heavenly Fathers. 
And one of the things I want to do is give you a little context behind this um, series. The thought of having this series actually came last Father's Day. Last Father's Day, I felt prompted to pray a very specific prayer for the fathers, and maybe some of you were here. Um, It was so specific that I felt like I was supposed to write it down, and I don't usually write out my prayers, but I wrote it down and I looked it back up. And here's the prayer that I prayed just about a year ago on Father's Day. And just right now, listen to the words. We'll put them up on the screen here too. This is the prayer that we prayed over fathers. We asked them all to stand and we prayed this over them last Father's Day. We prayed, Heavenly Father, I'm not aware of a time in the history of our world when the vital calling of Father has been more mocked or diminished or marginalized like it is in our culture today. May you inspire and empower each of these fathers to live out their calling with passion and purpose. May we be guided by the inspiration of your word and fueled by the power of your Holy Spirit to become the dads that you created us to be. And may we as brothers in Christ sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. This we pray in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We prayed that over dads last year. And as I was praying that, I felt very strongly led to make a note to self to say, next year, we need to spend a series pressing into fatherhood. We need to spend some extra time, not just as kind of a passing thought or as a one and done, but let's spend some time pressing into this idea of fatherhood. What do the scriptures say about fathers? And one of the reasons we even need to have this discussion is because it's been a, come a, a taboo topic in a, lot of, in a lot of circles. Just talking about fatherhood has become a taboo topic in a, in a large and a growing number of circles. Last week, Brandon shared a story about a couple fish that didn't realize that they were in water. And building on that word picture may also present to you that we don't realize how strong cultural currents are until we turn and try to swim upstream against them. And you start to realize just how strong those cultural currents are. This series matters. May I present to you that Christianity doesn't just rise and fall on a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Christianity rises and falls on a right relationship with our Father, who was his Father as well. Our Father who art in heaven. Two weeks ago, we took a look at the Lord's Prayer. And in that teaching, two weeks ago, we focused mostly on Matthew and his treatment of this prayer that Jesus gave his disciples to pray. Well, today what I want to do is I want to open up to Luke. And I want to show you what Luke does with that prayer. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like to make sure that you know we'd love to give you one free today. We keep a stack of Bibles there in the back and here in the front. Um, they're for you. And, the, and as Tom was putting the Bibles on the table, he was reminding me again, we are blowing through Bibles. How awesome is that? So please take one. We would love to have you be included in the blowing through the Bible's um, number there. All right, so Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. 
Jesus taught us to pray to our Heavenly Father. And here's one of the hopes that I would hope you would take home with you. Um, There's a place to write this down in your notes. Heavenly Fathers are good gifts. Can I get an amen from someone who's not a father? Amen. All right. Amen. Heavenly Fathers are good gifts. My dad, despite all his humanness, was a gift to our family from God. In part, because who God was, was embodied in him. He was not a particularly religious guy. But he was, a, he, was, he was made in the image of God. And he set out to honor God with his life. And I have a clear understanding of who my heavenly father is because of who my earthly father was. And isn't that a legacy that we want to pass on, right? To our kids, those who have them. Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer in a Jewish context. And that's so important to remember. When Jesus said our Father, he said our Father in a Jewish context. Now, were all Jewish dads perfect? No. They were as flawed as we were, right? People throughout history, we, we're all in this together. We, we were all as flawed as, as everyone. But, There was a first century Jewish understanding of fatherhood. And that understanding included themes like this. And we'll put them up on the screen. Here are some of the things. When when Jesus taught them to pray our father in a first century Jewish context, people were thinking about things like this when they heard father. Jewish fathers were ascribed honor and respect simply because of their office as father. They were ascribed honor and respect. They had authority over their children. They taught their children to love and to honor God. They taught their children to live well. And to live responsibly within society. Jewish fathers monitored behavior. And they administered discipline. Jewish fathers provided for and protected their families. Jewish fathers honored the covenant of marriage. And Jewish fathers loved their kids. Now it's interesting. You look at this list. And you think about the Lord's Prayer. And how many of these things are embedded in there, right? We pray our Father. And then we go on to pray a lot of these same things that are true about our Heavenly Father. We, in the prayer, we honor our Father's name. We invoke our Father's will. We ask our Father to provide for us and protect us and to forgive us. And if we just stopped right here at Luke 11.4, if we just stopped where Luke ends the Lord's Prayer, we could take this all kinds of different directions, couldn't we? We could take this message any one of all of those directions that it seems to lay out before us. And that's one of the beauties of the Lord's Prayer. One of the reasons I love it so much. It, it, it provides this, this framework where you can go this direction and this direction and this direction and this direction. In preparation for this week, I read some Charles Spurgeon. How many have ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Boy, could he, he could preach and he could write. And people don't talk like this anymore so much. But here's something that Charles Spurgeon wrote about the Lord's Prayer. He said, I've seen an architect form the model of a building he intends to erect of plaster or wood, but I never had an idea that I was intended to live in this thing. This prayer of Christ is a great chart, as it were, but I can't cross the sea on a chart. It's a map, but a man is not a traveler because he puts his finger across the map. In other words, Lord's Prayer, it's a launching point, isn't it? You can go this direction and this direction and this direction. It provides this incredible framework. But what I want to do today is to see what did Luke do with it? When Luke records the Lord's Prayer in this instance, where does he go with it? That's what I want to look at today. 
If you have your Bibles open, you're going to see that the book of Luke has all these little sections, these little sections, and you'll usually see a little header above the sections. Come on now, somebody. Do you remember what that section is called? A little section of scripture. What's it called? Pericopes. I'm not a failure. Not a failure. Good job. A pericope. Now, does, does this pericope end? Does this pericope end with Luke 4? 11.4. Is that where the pericope ends? No. It continues on. So there's this, Luke isn't done. He puts this Lord's Prayer out where you could go a lot of directions, but where does he go with it? That's what we're going to look at right now. So picking up with verse 5, here's where Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes next within this pericope. And Jesus said to them, right after he gave this Lord's Prayer, after they said, teach us to pray, he taught them to pray, and he continues on with this thought. Jesus says to them, which of you who has a friend will go to his friend at midnight and say to him, friend, send me three loaves or lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Don't bother me. Notice the first guy's all, hey friend, hey friend, will you please lend me some bread? This guy isn't like, friend, you bet. This guy's like, don't bother me. And in context, it's going to make a lot of sense here. He says that because the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And yet I tell you, continues Jesus, through, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now this makes a lot more sense in context. In that time, in that place, showing hospitality to guests This is in the category of crucial obligation. This is something that you just needed to do. It was unthinkable in that time, in that place, for the friend of the traveler to show anything less than Ritz-Carlton hospitality to his late-night out-of-town guests. One of my sources said, it was customary to serve a guest a fresh loaf of unbroken bread which is problematic in the middle of the night, to say the least. Because in that time, in that place, daily bread was a pretty literal expression. Most people were poor. They couldn't stock up on groceries. And even if they could, fresh bread didn't stay fresh very long. It wasn't like you could just Amazon now a fresh loaf at midnight or hop on your mule for a late night bread mart run. You literally baked or or bought your daily bread. That's what you did. And you bought or baked your daily bread during the day. That's how it worked. So how do you fulfill your crucial hospitality obligation if a weary out-of-town guest knocks on your door late at night and you're without daily bread? Well, you do what the guy did. This awkward thing. You, You have to light a lamp. You throw on your sandals and you have to do some door knocking of your own, which puts your neighbors in an awkward spot, especially if they have kids. How many of you have ever done the late night bedtime thing with little kids, whether as a babysitter or a parent? Does it ever feel like bedtime whack-a-mole, right? You get one down and another one pops up and then you try to go and then this one. and, and, And so that's what happens, right? And think about how much more difficult it would have been in that time in that place. Because generally people had one room, a whole families, 
in one room, a one-room house. And the kids are, you just get them down to sleep on the mats. And you don't have electricity. So when the lamp is out, the lamp is out. And you have this big bar that you bar the door with. So you finally get everyone down to sleep. You've had a long day probably out in the fields. You have another long day tomorrow. You get everyone down to sleep and at your door. Wow. Well, the account to describe all this in, in, in Luke's account here uses a word that only appears in the entire Bible in this story. Here we, we, we translate it as impudence, which is a word that we only use when we're trying to describe this word that nobody used, except in Luke 11, verse 8. Impudence. There's impudence in play with this ask. Impudence, it's a word that involves a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Or it's an absence of respect or an absence of modesty. What's going on here is a shamelessly bold interruption. A shamelessly bold interruption and a shamelessly bold request. And this is the example that Jesus gives. The precise nature of which second-year seminarians debate endlessly. But what I'm going to do is zoom out from that to the main point. The main point is not that God is like a sleepy friend who doesn't want to help. That's not the point. This illustration has more to do with just the audacity of this ask that this person had to ask. When we pray, at least with most of our prayers, we're like that friend who's asking another friend to lend them three loaves. The guy's in an impossible situation. He doesn't have a right to ask his friend anything, especially something like this. And he needs to ask his friend this. This is a moment where he shouldn't be in the situation, but he is in the situation. And the only way out of the situation is to ask something that he doesn't have the right to ask for. But he has no choice but to ask it. And I was reflecting on this. I'm like, this is real life, isn't it? Especially when we come to God. Because we're the ones out of bread, and it's the middle of the night. And in order to do what's right, we have to ask something of someone who we don't have any right to ask anything from. It's not his problem. It's ours. And I think all of us have found ourselves in that situation with God, where we cross a line that we should not have crossed. And now the one whose help we need is the one who we sinned against. Or we fail to prepare for something that we really should have seen coming and we need help from the one whose fault it's not. Or life just happened. And even though God doesn't owe us anything, we've got a favor to ask. And if you've ever been there, here's an invitation from Jesus Christ himself. After he gave that illustration, look what Jesus Christ says. After he paints his picture, you're like that guy who's asking something he doesn't have any right to ask. But he has to ask it. Jesus says this. And I tell you, picking up with verse 9, ask. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? And I tell you, ask. You've got no right to ask. Ask. It's your problem, not mine. But I sinned against you. Ask. 
And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it's going to be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it's going to be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, as I read that, I was thinking through the lens of a 10-year-old boy, and I'm like, oh, ask for a serpent or scorpion. That would be cool. (laughs) But it would not be cool in this context because we're not talking about here's a nice little glass cage where you're safe and protected, and here's your rattlesnake. Here's your scorpion. It's not like that. It's like the scorpion in your sleeping bag, right? It's like the the rattlesnake that you're not expecting as you're out playing. That's what we're talking about. It's something scary. It's something dangerous. What father would do that? You might be thinking, eggs, yahoo, you know. Those were good gifts back then. Eggs and fish. So would you please write this down? Heavenly fathers aren't just good gifts. If we want to be like heavenly fathers, we give good gifts. Good gifts. Not just gifts. Heavenly fathers give good gifts. An article appeared in the St. Paul paper back when St. Paul had a paper. I think they still kind of do, right? The title of the article was this, Parenting While Distracted. And the doctor who wrote the article, said this. The doctor said, I've been a pediatrician for 20 years and I thought I saw it all. But not long ago, a father brought his two-year-old. How old was the kid? Two-year-old. The father brought a two-year-old into my clinic and something happened that has me deeply concerned. Upon entering my examining room, I found the, the, uh, the father and son sitting together, eyes downcast, each silently scrolling and tapping on smartphones. During my initial exam, the father directed most of my questions to his frowning toddler, who indicated that his ears hurt, and I quickly discovered that both eardrums were red and inflamed. Well, guess what? I said to my small patient. Your ears hurt because you have an ear infection, but I can give you medicine to make you better. I smiled at the boy and his father, and immediately the child picked up his phone and pushed a button. Siwi, he said, what's affection? The doctor went on to say, what I saw was model behavior. A child who has learned that when he has a question, Siri and not dad is most readily available for an answer. It's hard to say, the doctor goes on to write, uh, for sure based on one moment, but there can be no doubt about the larger trend. Parents today are probably the most informed and involved generation in history, and yet, in the company of their children, they often act as though they'd rather be someplace else. That's what they're saying when they break eye contact to glance to their push notifications or check Facebook when they think the child's distracted. Parents are present, but their attention is not. Consider the results of a March study by researchers from Boston Medical Center who carefully observed caregivers and children at fast food restaurants. Of 55 caregivers, 
40 used their mobile devices and their absorption was such that their, quote, primary engagement was with the device rather than the child. 55 out of 40, you're going out to eat with your family. That's why I don't have Heavenly Fathers give good gifts, capitalized. We, we filled in the blank with good. Heavenly Fathers are good gifts. They give good gifts. One of the distinguishing characteristics of a Heavenly Father is their desire to give a good gift. And we get this from our Heavenly Father, right? Isn't that what Jesus is teaching us in this? To give good gifts. Let's backtrack quickly to Luke 11, verse 13. Luke eleven thirteen. Again, let's consider the context here. Jesus taught us, if you then who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? In that time, in that place, the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit would have struck the audience as breathtaking. Because conventional wisdom of that day saw the Holy Spirit like one of these three things. They thought either the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel altogether, or two, was only available to the holiest of people, or three, as we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the Holy Spirit was really more of a community thing rather than something that an individual could be gifted with. And here Jesus is saying, how much more will the, Holy, will, will the Heavenly Father even give you the Holy Spirit? If you ask him, given what my resources said, given their understanding of the Holy Spirit was, here's, here's what they would have seen. If we could put up that quote from the IVP. This was essentially a promise that God would make them prophets and anointed spokespersons for God. Something that would have just blown them away. What? Our Father would do what? Our Heavenly Father doesn't just give gifts. Our Heavenly Father gives really good gifts. And that greatest gift of all, of course, is the gift of eternal life. Gift of eternal life. Where we give up our sin, He gives us forgiveness. We stop trying to figure everything out ourselves. And He guides us. We turn from the path that leads to death. He points us to the path that leads to life. And if you've never received Christ or even know what that means, we'd love to talk to you about that today. I'll be up here. There'll be people in the back of the room. We'd love to pray for you about that or anything else. I quoted Charles Spurgeon earlier. He also said this, and this one I put in your notes because it's worth really reflecting on. He said this. He said, sonship is a thing which all the infirmities of our flesh and all the sins into which we are hurried by temptation can never violate or weaken. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Why does he give good gifts? Because we're his kids. Because we're his kids. Why can we have the audacity to ask? Because he's not just the king of kings. He's our heavenly father who loves to give good gifts. When you become a child of God, that's our status. And why can we ask again, our Heavenly Father, for good gifts? Because He's our Heavenly Father. And how much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? There's a place to write this in your notes. I'd encourage you to write this down. Are, are we teaching our kids the how much more principle? And this doesn't just go to fathers or mothers. 
This goes to everyone, right? Regardless of age, are we pouring this into the next generation? That we've got a God who's a how much more God. How much more. We may think we want to be in the cool crowd at school. Our Heavenly Father, He wants to help. He wants to give you so much more. He wants to give you really good friends. Really good friends. We may think we want more money and stuff. Our Heavenly Father, He wants to teach us how to be content in all circumstances. We may think you want a calm, clear day. Our Heavenly Father, He wants to teach us how to, how to navigate storms. Our Lord's prayer is a how much more prayer, isn't it? Because we're saying, Heavenly Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. We're, he's teaching us to pray for things like our daily bread and learning that it all comes from Him. He's teaching us to, to pray for forgiveness and that we would forgive others reconciliation. He wants to give us good gifts. And kids, you've been so great through this. You've been so great through this. We're so thankful for you. And we brought some good gifts here today too. We got some fun stuff up here. We have a little treat. We have a a little bin with some good gifts in it. So when the service is all done, we want you to be able to come up if it's okay with your parents. And you can take one of the little treats and you can take one of the gifts why we're doing that is because God gives good gifts and we want to be like him, right? Do we want to be like God, kids? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. He says, I'm going to get one of those when I have another. It's awesome. So parents, if it's okay for you afterwards, bring them on up and give them a good gift and just remind them that God loves to give good gifts. Well, as we bring this teaching to a close, let's take a quick look here at some of the good gifts that we can give our kids. And there's a place to write these down in your notes. You're going to notice that this list looks an awful lot like the list that we gave you at the top of the teaching. Take a look at this. Here's some good gifts that we can give kids. And let's start with the first. Honor and respect the office of fatherhood. In a culture that is diminishing that, one of the good gifts we can give is to honor and respect the office of fatherhood. That word office, it means a post. It means an appointment. Let's do that. There's a reason why Jesus said, honor your father and mother. We're learning things about God through that. The next one here, if you're the parent, be the parent. This is so countercultural, isn't it? It is so countercultural. But this is a gift we can pass on to our kids because I said so. Is actually a gift we can give our kids. Is that our answer all the time? Nope, because that's not God's answer all the time, is it? Nope. But is it God's answer sometimes? Yes. And I tell you, in my house, I always knew who the father was, right? And that was a gift because there's going to be times in our lives where we have to say, okay, God, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. But because you said so, you're the father, that's how this works. Next one down, teach your children to love and honor God above all else. Don't teach them that God is someone who just blesses our dreams and our plans. Teach them to be a person who seeks after God's destiny for them in life. Because we're his workmanship, right? Created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And this one, teach your children to live well. And what's the next word? Responsibly in society. That's a gift we can give. And here's four more. We can pop up the next monitor behavior and administer discipline. Jewish dads, a lot of them are very purposeful about that. 
What if we help that? Because isn't that what God does too? He disciplines those he loves. To provide and protect. Isn't that a gift? And then husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Let your kids grow up seeing that this is, this is what we do. And then fathers, love your kids. Because we have a heavenly father that absolutely loves us. So much that he sent his one and only son for us. So in other words, try to be like our heavenly father who art in heaven. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of this series. And as we bring this particular teaching to a close, I want to give that invitation that we gave on Father's Day last year. If there's any fathers who would appreciate me praying that prayer over you, actually us praying this prayer over you, would you mind standing if you want to receive that prayer that we prayed? Fathers, you want to stand up and let's pray that over you right now if you'd like that prayer. So please stand. Let's sincerely, people, let's sincerely pray this over them, over all of our fathers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am not aware of a time in history, in the history of our world, when the vital calling of Father has been mocked or diminished or marginalized like it is in our culture today. May you inspire and empower each of these fathers to live out their calling with passion and with purpose. May we be guided by the inspiration of your word. May we be fueled by the power of your Holy Spirit to become the dads that you created us to be. And may we as brothers in Christ sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. This we pray in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, God bless all of you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.